Chapter Eight of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter Eight by Helen Campbell. Mission work in tough places, seeking to save a leaf from the experience of an all-night missionary, rescue work in the slums. It's life and death. Don't stop me. Clear the way, I tell you, or there'll be mischief done. Truly it looked like it. The man's face was flushed to a dark red, and yet was curiously pale about the lips. He was tall and powerful, a bullet head and heavy jaw, and long, strong arms that swung like flails as he ran wildly down the street. "'It's murder,' someone said, as with frightened eyes all made way for the fleeing man. A policeman hastened his steps as the fugitive rounded the corner into 32nd Street, for the first rush had been down 7th Avenue, from one of the high tenement houses not far away.' The broad doors of the Cremorne Mission swung open the instant the man reached them, as if someone behind them had felt the rush and answered the cry of a need, unknown as yet, but of the sorest. "'Lock me up!' he cried, as the doors swiftly closed behind him, and he fell limp and breathless on one of the long benches. "'Lock me up! You promise to help me. Help me now, or I'm gone!' It's on me, I tell you. I'm going mad if I ain't helped. Frank, to whom this appeal was addressed, was the faithful man in charge of the Cremorne mission rooms, and was himself a convert from the lowest depths. He had been a drunken sailor, dragged into the Water Street mission by a friend, and to his own intense and always fresh surprise was converted before the evening ended. The most secret cranny of a drunkard's mind was an open book to him. He knew every possibility and phase of this and of every other malady of soul that could possibly be brought before the mission, and he regarded each fresh case as another chance for him to bear witness to the power of the work he had chosen as his own. His serious eyes and firm-set jaw testified to power enough for every emergency. He said little, but somehow the worst cases submitted to him, and followed his directions implicitly. He nodded once or twice in answer to the appeal, then took the trembling man by the arm and led him toward the stairway at the back of the mission, leading to a room above. "'She'll see to you,' he said, as a door was reached, and he pushed the shuddering figure before him. "'Stop your worrying, and Jesus and all of us will pull you through.' The policeman had reached the door and put his head in with an interrogative look. "'It's all right,' called back Frank, who shut the door at the foot of the stairs and shot the bolt. "'It's a feller with the tremens coming on, and he wants to be looked out for.' not coming on either. It's the craze to get a drink into him, and the fear'll break his promise and cave in. 
Go long, it's all right. You're not needed for that kind of thing. The fugitive, with as deadly a terror upon him as any who, in an older day, fled toward the cities of refuge, had thrown himself on the floor, and beside him knelt a woman whose face and voice carried with them a power that stilled the most turbulent and tempest-tossed spirit. He caught at her dress and held it with the clutch of a drowning man. "'God,' he said, "'it's the devil's own fire inside of me. You don't know how it feels. I'll have to go.' "'No, you won't,' said Mrs. Macaulay in a quiet but firm voice. "'Here comes Frank. Now drink this, and you will not mind so much.' "'Wise woman.' Frank was there with a cup of steaming hot strong coffee, made on the instant in his little office below. He knew what would steady the quivering nerves so accustomed to the pull of alcohol upon them, that only the strongest substitute would make any impression. The patient was O'Rafferty, a convert of only a few months' standing, a man who had been the terror of the ward, and whose first coming into the mission had been to threaten another man with a licking for daring to do the same thing. Time and again he had been sent up to Blackwell's Island for countless offences committed in drunken sprees. Every boy in the ward knew his name, and all had watched to see how his new craze would turn and how long he would hold out. Night after night he had risen in the old mission in Water Street with anxious look and knitted brow. Lord, if I shouldn't hold out, what a disgrace on the Lord Jesus and the whole mission had been his form of prayer. Pray for me, friends, that I needn't fall away for I'll be like to cut me throat if I do. There'll be no need of anything as strong as that, Haggerty once said with a little twinkle, in reply to O'Rafferty's despondent prayer. Haggerty, who knew every phase of drunkenness, had also been converted in the old Water Street mission, and chose to stay there and work in the same fashion that Frank did at the Cremorne. Now and then he called at the Cremorne to see his old friends and ask, What cheer? He had dropped in that very morning, and, recognizing O'Rafferty, he said with cheery yet earnest voice, The Lord Jesus is plenty powerful enough to hold you stiddy. Stop frettin', and just take it for granted you'll be kept straight. That's the way it was with me. You've got to trust, and then the devil can't get nigh you. This time the devil was nearer than at any time since the trial began. Frank watched his excited charge closely, and knelt down beside him as Mrs. Macaulay prayed for peace and deliverance to come to this poor tempted soul. And then he led him to an upper room and pointed to the bed, which had held many another in like condition. "'Don't let me out whatever I may say.' the man begged, and Frank nodded encouragingly. "'Don't you fret. We're going to pull you through.' "'It's a pretty fair day,' Frank said to himself, as he closed the door behind him and descended to the floor below, 
where Mrs. Macaulay was facing three women, one of them dressed in the extreme of fashion, and with all the make-up of an experienced actress. "'Only eleven o'clock, and three hard ones in already,' he said to Mrs. Macaulay. "'It'll be a good day, I'm thinking. "'A good day for Frank is the one that gives him the most to do.' "'Mrs. Macaulay said to the women with a smile. "'But that's so for all of us. "'Now tell me just what you want, "'and I'll see what we can do for you. "'I want you to stop interfering with my girls,' "'the painted woman said. "'The other two looked at her a little fearfully. "'They were all of the same profession, "'but the speaker was practically at the head "'in the house which harbored them "'and which had been many times raided by the police.' It is because women here lure other women to destruction, and no one has yet found a way to check such traffic, that the Water Street Mission has come to the rescue of a region supposed to need such assistance in far less degree. Drunken sailors are fewer here than in and about Water Street, it is true, but every other order of crime is represented, the pettier sorts predominating. But the fearful life led by these women could not by any possibility be classed under the head of petty crimes. Their errand to the mission had not been suspected. There was sorrow and also deep indignation in Mrs. Macaulay's face as she turned to reply. But ere the words could be spoken, the woman went on. "'You've taken away three of my best girls that I was always a mother to, "'and you may ask them if I wasn't. "'I've done you no harm. "'Let me and my house alone, "'for there's plenty in it more respectable than you was once.' "'She's crazy,' said one of the other women apprehensively. "'She would come, but there's no sense in such asking. "'What I've come for is to find out about Lena "'that you took in here last month.' Her folks have searched her out, and want to take her back home, and they were ashamed to come here for her. They'll have to get over it, then, said Mrs. Macaulay, after a moment's look at the crafty face studying hers as intently. She knew the trick. Two or three girls, who had taken refuge in the mission, had, in the very beginning of their new life, been taken out on this plea. "'You'll have to try some other way. "'I'm pretty well used to this one,' Mrs. Macaulay went on with a smile. "'And Frank, who had lingered near, watched the trio out, "'and shook his fist after the retreating figures. "'God forgive me,' he said, "'but them's the kind I could most strangle with me own hands "'till they promised to let other women alone. "'I'll have another look at O'Rafferty upstairs.' He was dangerous when he come in, but he'll be pulled through. At this moment a child, impish, skinny, tearful and ragged, entered the doorway and rushed toward Mrs. Macaulay. See, was all she said, but the black and blue bruises on her lean little arms told the story more powerfully than words. See! she said again, as she thrust out a stockingless leg, on which were more black and blue marks. "'I wants to stay here, till me mother's out of her drinkin' fit. I sold me papers good, all the boys helps me. 
There isn't one round the station doesn't give me a chance, and I'd twenty cents of my own, and me mother took it all for drink, and then basted me when I snatched and got back a penny. I gived him the money for me, papers tonight. But what'll I do if me mother comes after it? Please let me stay here a while. Stay and welcome, you poor little soul, said Frank and then made a rush up the stairs as he heard the sound of vigorous kicks on the door of the little room in which he had left O'Rafferty. "'Easy now!' he shouted. "'What are you up to in there? Easy now! Easy now!' "'Let me out! For the love of God, let me out!' came back the answer, with a roar like that of a wild beast. "'I tell you I'll do murder if I'm not let out!' Oh, no, for the love of God, don't let me out. The roar changed to a cry. There were sobs and groans within, and Frank's own eyes were not dry. Poor soul, he answered. I'm here. I'll stay a bit with you, O'Rafferty. You shan't be let go to get into worse trouble. He listened a little. The sobs lessened. O'Rafferty was on his knees, praying in an agony and outside the door Frank answered him, "'Lord Jesus, that holds up all them as is nigh fallen, and did it to Peter on the water. Hold up this soul, and never let go, till he's inside the kingdom. Amen, amen.' Downstairs again he ran, for another call had come from below. A voluble Irishwoman, half drunk and wholly dirty and foul, had come straight from the police court, where she had been fined five dollars after a night in the cells. "'I want me Pat!' she cried, with maudlin tears. "'Me Pat, that you took from me and turned again his own mother that bore him. He'll not see me put upon and made the sport o' all. Where's me Pat?' Answer me that now, or it'll be the worse for ye, murder and turncoats every one of ye. It was Frank's business to quiet her, and he succeeded at last in getting her away. Watched by the little news girl, who had curled down on one of the seats, and was enjoying the warmth and the sense of shelter and protection. Meantime, a woman who had entered silently dropped on her knees and prayed for a moment, then rose and looked apologetically at Frank. "'I can't help it,' she said. "'I'm too used to going into a church to do me praying, not to miss it a bit sometimes. And this is nearer church than anything I know. Do you think it's wicked?' "'I'll not be saying,' Frank returned. "'But I will say you mustn't turn your praying into idolatry "'and think it's any better than down on your knees in your own room "'and none to see nor hear. "'Here's this Kitty, the newsgirl, again, "'black and blue from her mother's beaten. "'You're in the same house with him. "'Can't you keep a kind of an eye to her? "'And save a rap or two, maybe? "'It's hard on the young one, "'and she the breadwinner for herself, "'let alone the little baby at home.' "'The baby's most through with its troubles,' the woman returned. "'Its mother mashed it worse last night, rolling on it, "'and I doubt but that she might be took up for it. "'It would be a good thing for the whole house if she was.' "'Kitty burst into tears and made toward the door, "'pushing away Frank's detaining hand. "'It's me own fault,' she sobbed. "'I might a known me mother'd mash em. 
I wish Chid mashed me instead of the baby. I want to get him and bring him here. The woman turned with her and nodded reassuringly to Frank, saying as she passed out, I'll have an eye to all of them. Their places were filled by a girl whose face was red with weeping, and who, with one scared look at Frank, flew up the stairs and almost threw herself upon Mrs. Macaulay. "'I didn't go away from the mission of my own will,' she said. "'They watched for me, and Willie was there, and he asked me, just for his sake, to come and have dinner with them. And then, and then, you don't believe me.' You don't trust me. Oh, what shall I do? What will become of me? She threw herself down in a passion of weeping, clenching her hands as the sobs threatened to become hysterics. Let me tell you all, she cried. I never told you the whole. If I do that, then perhaps you'll believe me. Let us leave her with Mrs. Macaulay's tender eyes bent upon her, her gentle voice bidding the girl take comfort. Such story as hers cannot have room here, though indeed it might well be told for every girl who turns with longing toward the great unknown city, and pines to escape from the irksomeness of country life. We cannot even follow the mission through its day. From early morning till late night its doors are open, and sad souls tell their tale, and beg for shelter, for sympathy, for aid, and not one of them goes away unanswered. The night mission work of Mr. H. B. Gibbard, among the very lowest outcasts in tenement-house districts, is typical of the work now carried on by the Florence Night Mission. The following incident in his experience illustrates one phase of the work performed by these all-night missionaries. He says, my congregation was a motley crowd, assembled in a small second-story room on Baxter Street, in one of the lowest sections of New York. The audience was gathered from neighboring alleys, narrow streets, saloons, dance halls, and dives. Jews, Gentiles, olive-skinned Italians, and almond-eyed Chinamen sat side by side. Sailors were in the majority— dissolute women, both white and black, and a few loafers who had found the corner chilly on that bitterly cold night gathered round the stove. A scattering of beggars and tramps sought refuge from the wintry blast. Several boys and girls, attracted by the singing, helped to fill the room. Among the notables present was London, the leader of a gang of thieves, whose friendship I had won, and who helped to keep order. Poor fellow, he was murdered in front of the tomb's prison not long after. There was Lame William, a shiftless, drunken fellow, who had helped us to rescue a girl from the slums. He was afterwards led to Christ, and became a sober, earnest Christian worker. There was one-eyed Tommy, who was an expert in his line of business, which was to find intoxicated men on the Bowery, lead them around to Bottle Alley, or the Flat Iron, and there rob them of their money and strip them of their clothes. 
Business must have been slack, for he was quite sober, and looked as pious as it was possible for a one-eyed man to look. Among the female portion of the audience was a small colored girl of local repute as a fighter. When drunk and in a fighting mood, she became the terror of the neighborhood. She had been nicknamed Roll Jordan because of her fondness for the refrain of that name. When she was drunk, in spite of all I could do, she would sing in a loud, shrill voice, "'There are no hypocrites in the heaven of my lore. Oh, our longs to go. Judgment, judgment, judgment day am I rolling along. Oh, our longs to go.' And then all would join in the chorus, "'Roll, Jordan, roll!' Roll, Jordan, roll. I wants to go to Eben when I dies, to hear old Jordan roll. Then there was the midget, with innocent doll-like face, and others of less notoriety. The room was well filled, so I brought the song service to a close, and was about to read the scripture, when the discordant sounds of an approaching street band caused the audience to rise en masse and rush down the stairs, leaving me alone save one or two tramps, whose deep slumbers could not by any possibility have been disturbed. It was a common occurrence for my audience to leave without ceremony. A dog-fight or any disturbance on the street would empty the room immediately. I was obliged to go out again and compel them to come in. When order was restored, I read the story of the prodigal son. All listened quietly, and I was only interrupted by the stertorous snores of the sleepers and by the yells and catcalls of street boys who persistently hooted at the door. The story was familiar to many, some of whom had literally left good homes, gone into a far country, spent their substance in riotous living, and had arrived at the pig-pen point of the journey. And my prayer was that some might arise and come back to their father. I was urging them to do this when a woman entered and crouched near the door. My attention was drawn to her at once. She was such a wreck. Though not over twenty, she looked forty. Ragged, dirty, bruised, and bloated, she had hardly the semblance of a woman. I told for her benefit the story of the Scotch lassie who had wandered away from home, and of her return and welcome by a loving mother. I ended by saying, there are those here to-night who have a loving mother still praying for them. This shot at a venture struck home. Her lips quivered, tears ran down her cheeks. She was the first to come forward for prayers. She told me, between her sobs, that she was the only daughter of a praying mother, then living in another part of the city. She had erred in the choice of her company, and an elder brother in anger had put her out of the house, threatening to kill her if she returned to disgrace the family. Driven from home, she gradually sank from one level to another until she became an outcast on the street. For five years she had neither seen a relative nor heard from home.
I urged her to return, but she hesitated, doubting her welcome. I promised to visit her mother and plead for her, and the girl finally promised to be at the meeting the next night. The next day I visited her mother. She was a Welsh woman, sixty years of age, living on the top floor of a cheap tenement house. She had been a Christian for many years. After conversing with her on other matters, I cautiously inquired if she had a daughter named Jenny, and was surprised when she calmly answered no. I told her I had been informed that she had. Well, I once had a daughter by that name, she slowly said, but she is dead. Are you quite sure? Yes, at least I think she is. Yes, I am sure she is. We have not heard from her in five years. Then we heard she was dead. I told her she was still alive and anxious to return home. The mother's love returned. In great agitation, and with tears streaming down her face, she exclaimed, "'Tell her she is welcome. Oh, find her and bring her to me, and all shall be forgiven. For God's sake, do not disappoint me. It will kill me if you do.' I promised to bring Jenny home without fail, but that night she was not at the meeting. In vain I searched all the haunts of vice in the neighborhood, but found no trace of her. In one of the saloons I met an acquaintance, a young prize-fighter. He had drifted into the mission room one night, and had disturbed the meeting so much that in sheer desperation I suddenly seized him by the collar and bounced him through the door with such quick dispatch that it had won his profound admiration and warm friendship. I told him the object of my search. He said— that Jenny was probably in some stale beer dive, adding that stale beer dives were underground cellars or small rooms kept by Italians where liquor was sold at one cent per pint, and where the most degraded wretches of both sexes often gathered for a night's lodging for which they paid two or three cents each. He volunteered to pilot me and help to search for her. It was near midnight, and the thought of venturing into such dens was not pleasant. But the promise to Jenny's mother decided me, and I said, Lead on, I'll follow. Well, missioner, missionary, he said as we went along, I ain't much stuck on religion. You see, I didn't have no mother to religious me, and I guess that's the reason. But I'd help anyone out of them dives. I ain't religious like you understand. You can't be religious and fight, can yer? Well, that's how I makes my eat. No fight, no eat, see? So it's either eat or religion. And as I takes naturally to eat, and don't to religion, I eats and fights and fights and eats, see? I may reform some day and get religion. I ain't got nothing again it no how. We walked rapidly through a narrow dark street, then turned into a long alleyway leading into an area or backyard, in which stood a typical rear tenement house. We entered and climbed up the rickety stairs. My guide unceremoniously pushed open a door, and we found ourselves in a room dimly lighted by a peddler's lamp. 
the English language cannot describe the scene before us. The room was crowded with men and women of the most degraded type. Misery, rags, filth, and vermin were on every side, and above all arose a stench so utterly vile that the nostrils once assailed it could never be forgotten. All were more or less intoxicated and stared idiotically at us. A quick survey was all I could stand. The stench and sights were so horrible, I beat a hasty retreat, and was about to return to the street, when the fighter informed me that there were six other places of like character in that one house. He then led me downstairs into an underground room, the floor of which was bare ground. The walls were covered with green slime, and water was dripping from the ceiling. Yet crowded into this hole and huddled together were fifteen men and women. As we entered, someone shouted, "'What's wanted?' "'A girl named Jenny,' said the fighter. As he said this, a young girl started up, but was knocked back by a big ruffian, who rushed forward, cursing fearfully and asking, "'What's wanted with the girl?' As he advanced in a threatening manner, and seemed about to annihilate me, I felt like withdrawing. But when he had nearly reached us, the fighter struck out, knocking the brute over several others into the corner, where he lay rubbing his head." The fighter, satisfying himself that Jenny was not there, quietly withdrew. We visited several other places, and finally one worse than all, kept by an Italian hag named Rosa. We entered a hall and stumbled over several sleepers who lay on the floor, too drunk to notice our stepping on them. Propped up on either side along the walls were men and women dead drunk or fast asleep. A dim light shone through the alley and into the hall from the street lamp, and by crouching down we soon ascertained that Jenny was not there. "'We will go into this room if we can get in,' said my guide, as he banged away at a door at the farther end of the hall. You see, the old gal, when de gets full and can't set up and spend money, chucks em out into de hall, and pulls de knob of de door in, so they can't get back again. Sure enough, the knob was in, and it took several vigorous raps to get a response from within. At last the door was cautiously opened by old Rosa, and the fighter pushed his way in. The place was crowded. Our advent caused a flutter and muttered comment among those sober enough to notice us. Some tried to escape, taking us for detectives. Others said, "'It's the doctor. Don't be afraid.' I had a kind word for them all. The fighter, too, reassured them, and confidence was in a measure restored. While he was searching for Jenny, I looked around. The room was filled with the hardest, filthiest set of men and women I had ever seen. Many were nearly naked. Bloated faces were cut and swollen, and eyes blackened, while on the neck, hands, and other exposed parts of the body could be seen on many great festering sores. 
Vermin, large enough to be seen with the naked eye, abounded. Boards placed on the top of beer kegs made seats. Under these, piled in like sacks of salt, were those who had become too drunk to sit up. Others occupied the seats and dangled their feet in the faces of those underneath, often stepping with drunken tread on some upturned face. In one corner of the room was a bed made from dry-goods boxes, covered with an old mattress and rags. On this were lying two little Italian children. Their innocent faces were in strong contrast to those of the bloated, blear-eyed crowd. On the mantelpiece a candle burned, shedding a ghastly light on the awful scene. On the foul wall hung a picture of St. Rocco, who, Rosa the dive-keeper, said, was a good saint in Italy. The plaster had fallen from the walls in several places, and the lathing had been removed to be used for fuel. This gave the room a skeleton-like appearance. An old stove set out from the fireplace was red-hot. A man lying on a bench in front of it turned over, and in his drunken sleep threw his leg, which was bare, right on the stove. My attention was called that way by the smell of burning flesh. The poor wretch was too drunk to notice it. I pushed his leg off, but not till it had been badly burned. In the fireplace behind the stove, four or five men had been thrown in a heap to sleep off their intoxication. In a small cupboard, two men were crowded. In one corner, near the ceiling, was a coop containing a rooster and a hen, who were eking out a miserable existence. In a small birdcage, a white dove, the emblem of purity, looked down upon all that was impure. On the floor were piles of rags brought in from the ash barrels of the street. The stench arising from these was sickening. Some of these rags had been washed and hung on lines across the room, and were still dripping. As the fighter bent over, searching for Jenny, the drops fell on his neck, and for a moment took away all the religious feeling he had. I entered into conversation with the keeper. Her face was wrinkled, and her piercing black snaky eyes shone like beads. She looked the very incarnation of ugliness, and had shown her temper by striking an old grey-haired woman full in the face with a bunch of keys just after we entered. Rosa's knowledge of English was limited, but she enabled me to understand that her husband, Picka de rag, my son, he play de harpa, make a muse, while her daughter kept a pinot de stand and sell a banana. The one aim of the family was to get rich and go back to Italy. In the meantime, the fighter had been pulling out sleepers from under the seats and scanning their faces. At last, crouching in a corner among the filth, was found the child of many prayers. Aroused from her stupor, I found the spirit of the previous evening had fled. In vain I pleaded with her to return home, and earnestly spoke of her grey-haired mother so anxiously waiting her return, 
willing to forgive all. But she would not go, making the excuse that she had no shoes, hers having been stolen while she slept. The fighter went out and soon returned with an old worn-out pair he had begged, borrowed, or stolen. Still she refused to go. A policeman who had meantime stepped in to see what was going on, and had listened to my appeal, now joined us in urging her to go home. He said, "'You'd better go. You know if you stay around here, likely as not, I'll be ordering the dead wagon for you, and you'll be carted off and dumped in the morgue and buried in Potter's Field.' This had no effect." Finally, losing patience, he gave her a poke with his club, saying, "'Get out of here, you got a good chance. If you don't take it, I'll club the life out of you, if I ever catch you on my beat again.' Once out on the street, she became more tractable, but more despondent, saying, "'It's no use, it's no use.' The fighter, who had become intensely interested, exclaimed, what you want to do is to brace up and go home and do the straight thing. Don't give in. You'll get along. Don't it say, Mishner, that the Lord will procure? I ain't religious much myself, but I think it does. For when I was a-doing ten days on the island, a lady gave me a track that said something like that on it. At length, though very reluctantly, she consented to go with us. She was in a terrible plight, being half-naked and covered with filth. We took her to the house of a Christian woman, who gave her a bath, combed her matted hair, and gave her clothing. Then we started for her home, reaching there about three o'clock. All was dark, but we groped our way to the top of the house, to her mother's door, the poor woman, worn out with watching, had fallen asleep, but woke at our rap. She told us to go into the front room. We did so. Jenny had been weeping silently, but now, as the old familiar pictures on the wall became visible by the dim light of the candle, she began to sob aloud. The mother entered with a lamp in her hand. She gave one glance at the girl, then quickly stepped back, nearly dropping the lamp. "'That is not my daughter,' she wildly cried. "'You have made a mistake. No, no, that is not my Jenny. It can't be.' She covered her face with her hands and sank to the floor beneath the burden of her grief. "'Yes, mother, it is your Jenny, your poor lost Jenny. Don't you know me?' "'There's Willie's picture, and that's Charlie's,' she said, pointing to some photographs on the wall. "'I am your Jenny. Oh, forgive me, mother, forgive me!' With this cry for pardon, she fell sobbing at her mother's feet. I became interested in a picture at the other end of the room. When I turned again, mother and daughter sat side by side on the sofa, the black tresses of the daughter resting on the silver-white locks of the mother, and tears were rolling down both faces. After a prayer we left. The fighter said as we reached the street, Two doses of this kind of biz would fix me sure. I'd have to get religion if I starved. I think if I did I'd be one of them, what do you call em, uh, Eve Evangelists? I'd hold meetings in the theaters and get in all the boys and toughs like me, see? I might join you yet, 
Anyhow, I ain't got nothing against yer. Good night. The call next day at Jenny's home was one of many pleasant visits that finally led her to Jesus, and both mother and daughter joined a little church just started, and became followers and workers for the mighty to save. Over on the east side on 3rd Avenue, near 32nd Street, is another mission, known simply as the Madison Square Mission, supported by a fashionable church on Madison Square. It is under the direction of a former popular evangelist, who, after her marriage to Mr. Ballou, himself a reformed drunkard, came to New York for this mission. Mrs. Ballou had at one time worked among the sailors on the docks, and her knowledge of human nature is of the same keen sympathetic order as was Jerry Macaulay's. Third Avenue has taken on many of the characteristics of the Bowery, and this mission, though not open at all times like the others, does very efficient work in reclaiming drunkards. Naturally, much the same scenes are enacted at their meetings. There is perhaps more formality, but no less earnestness, and the East Side knows the name of the Baloos hardly less well than the West Side does that of Macaulay. All of these missions deal with the poor, the sinful, and the struggling on the same basis. They may tell their story as they will, and to the wretched this is much they know little or nothing of societies. The fact that real help and sympathy may be had here is passed by word of mouth from one to another of these poor souls, and the news quickly goes that in all these places, or at Michael Dunn's, one may tell the worst and never receive a slight or a scoff. "'That's the place where one never seems to know but what he's as good as the best,' said a forlorn man in my hearing, as I turned one day toward the Third Avenue Mission. He had been drinking, and had pawned all that could well be pawned, and he stood there now, shivering and pondering as to what he should say for himself when he faced the man and woman who had over and over again befriended him but he presently shuffled toward the door of the mission and went shamefacedly in, bent upon once more, trying how far he could keep the promises so often broken. How many of the same type and of every grade below pause before the doors of these missions where a welcome greeting awaits all alike! Now and then a comrade lures away a former crony to his old haunts, who but for this would have found safe refuge in one or another of these mission harbors, whose lights may be seen at many points here in this quarter of the city. But the men who go in and out number many hundreds a year, and for most of them reformation is not a delusion. To one who sees the poverty and struggle of their daily lives, and adds to this the temptation they must continually fight, and which is stronger almost than they, the miracle is that any remain steadfast. 
that they do not oftener fall away is a tribute to the strength of the influences thrown around them and to the depth of their conviction at old michael dunn's one could hear even sadder stories if that were possible than at the other missions until he removed to another city michael had a little mission nearly opposite jerry macaulay's old one on water street and there he took in all who wanted to come and as many more as he could coax into trying another type of life he chose to turn an honest penny after spending fifty-three years of his life in prisons all over the world other missions show a very large percentage of drunken cases and a small one of crime but at michael's it was always the latter though often it was drink that had brought crime in its train so many were young boys almost who had been sent up for short terms and so obtained their first knowledge of a trade of regular meals composed of decent food and of clean and wholesome quarters while serving a criminal term but the coming out of prison found them in as hard a place as when they went in they were often better men than when they entered it but the convict's stamp was on them, and all men eyed them doubtfully, save the old set in the familiar saloons and bucket shops. It was here that Michael Dunn came in. He carried a tender heart for just such cases. He persuaded them to try life with him for a little time, and found some employment where they would not constantly be reminded of what they had been. It cannot be denied that Michael was sometimes disappointed, and that his apparently most promising converts at times relapsed suddenly into their old life, and went up for another sentence. But there is many a man to-day earning an honest wage, and living the life of a good citizen, who owes any possibility of such life to the faith shown in him by Michael Dunn and by other men of Water Street who, like him, have had a bitter experience and left it far behind them. "'Tell us how it was, Michael,' his boys would say, respectfully, as he sat among them, his silver-bowed spectacles pushed back and looking benignantly from one to another. "'It takes all me two minutes a time,' he made answer, "'to tell the prisons I've been in.' Why not, when I was trained regularly to steal? Me and me grandmother, and me aunt and me brother, every one of us was in together for thievin', and it come natural as breathin'. Thirty-five years I've spent in prisons in Sydney and Australia, and many a year in prisons in this country, fifty-three years in all. I knew Jerry Macaulay well when he was a thief, and one day I come into his old mission when I was just out after three year in. You're about at the end of your tether, Michael Dunn, says he. Yes, you are. You got brains and you've used em for naught, since God gave em to you, but to do rascality and teach the same to others. It's time now to turn round and see if you can't undo some of your wicked work. Do you like it? Do you want to keep on serving terms till you go up to your last judge? I believe you can be an honest man and happy one if you will. 
I looked at him kind of dazed like, me, honest and happy, me, that had never had wife, nor home, nor naught but for man to mouth, in the few months I'd be out. I laughed, but it wasn't a very cheerful laugh, and Jerry says, stern like as ever I heard, Michael Dunn, it's your last chance. Come here to-night and see what you think of what goes on in this place. Well, I come to the mission that night. I was that sick and sore inside. I was ready for anything. And when the door opened and I heard him a-singin', for weary fate remains a street, a wondrous pave and golden. I says to myself, says I, I want to walk it some time, and if there is any way of learning now, I'll stay here till I find out. I was that hard-hearted that it did seem as if I never should, but it wasn't a week afore I knew that I was going to be let to try for it. I know now if I can be happy and, and art at work making up for all the deviltry I was up to in the old days, that there ain't a man that can't do the same, and so I lay for every one of you boys, and I'm going to lay for you long as I live. You do the same, boys, and between us we'll make over the ward and get things all our own way. There won't be many saloons when we're through, and not a tenement house anywhere's in sight to breed more the sort we were, and that's a big enough job to work for as long as there's strength for work, or thinking how to get even with the devil, and that's Michael Dunn's first wish and his last. End of chapter 8